another pot of coffee is brewing and I've just finished my fourth cup of the day. I know, I know, seriously, I said I was going to be cutting back, but today is just one of those five or six cup days and I'm gonna roll with it because what else can I do? All that means is that it's time for another episode of Not Before Coffee. I'm your host, Ray, self-confessed bookworm, film addict, TV show marathoner, hermit, long-term depression sufferer, and very honest caffeine fiend. This week I'm back with the second episode of Jennifer Aniston season, and what better way to continue in the rom-com vein than with the 2004 box office success that was Along Came Polly. It's kind of appropriate really, given the Hollywood.com review that stated Aniston was much better off starring with people like Ben Stiller than she was in a vehicle where she was the only one with somewhat comedic origins. I have started to plan out the last two films of the month, though being honest, I am taking Jennifer Aniston recommendations for movies available on UK streaming services because that's what I've got, and I do have my eye on a few. I may even do a poll on Twitter, so if you want, you could maybe get a chance to vote on the film you most want to hear me talk about. Actuary Reuben Pfeffer, played by Ben Stiller, is so aware of the risks inherent in all situations that he is unable to risk anything. His bride, Lisa Kramer, played by Deborah Messing, seems perfect, but cheats on him during their honeymoon. Back home in New York City, his best friend, former child star Sandy, who is played by the always incredible Philip Seymour Hoffman, urges him to attend a party. There he meets an ex-classmate, Polly Prince, who is obviously Jennifer Aniston, whose spirited ways spark his adoration but confound his neuroses. The film starts at a wedding. Reuben is a very happy groom who can't wait to marry the love of his life, Lisa, played by, as I've already said, Deborah Messing, who was six years into her first eight-year run in Will and Grace at the time. Everything at the wedding seems to go smoothly. The vows are made, glasses are raised, dances are done. And the next thing we know, the happy couple have arrived at their honeymoon hotel on the luxury island of St. Bart's, which was actually Oahu in Hawaii. It doesn't even take one day for the cracks to start showing in their brand new marriage. They're on the beach looking through the newspaper for a new house when a very naked man interrupts them and offers them scuba classes. His name is Claude, and apparently he's incredibly good at his job, because Reuben is hardly going to take this guy's word for it. He's going to ask everywhere. Reuben and Lisa decide to take Claude up on his offer for a scuba trip. However, at the very last minute, just as they are about to get on the boat, Reuben says that he doesn't want to go. Foolishly, he encourages Lisa to go on without him. Oblivious to whatever may be going on elsewhere, Reuben is setting the scene for a romantic evening with his wife, lobster, rose petals, the lot. He then goes to pick Lisa up and is horrified when he gets on Claude's boat and witnesses the unsuspecting couple having sex. They haven't, as he mentions later, even bothered to take their flippers off. 
Ruben is hurt by the betrayal. Well, duh. And even more devastated when Lisa tells him that she's staying on the island with Claude as she's confused. Ruben tells Lisa that she can't undo what's happened and he won't take her back if she doesn't come with him. He then storms off. Unfortunately for him, in the classic way that comedies tend to, he somehow manages to crash his hire car and ends up having to get a lift to the airport from the very man who just shagged his wife. And they get just a little bit too close on the back of his tiny little scooter. I don't imagine that it can ever be easy for someone to be dumped by a new partner they've just shown their feelings for incredibly publicly, as Ruben did at a wedding, and he's no different. First of all, he has to face all the unopened gifts that have been delivered to the flat he shared with Lisa, and then he has to go back to work where everyone knows what happened, courtesy of his mother. He probably should have taken just a little bit more time off work to recover, but Ruben has nothing else. Also, it does appear that he has a pretty good relationship with his boss, Stan, who is played by a very officious-looking and rather unusual-looking, to be honest, Alec Baldwin. That said, I do keep on waiting for Stan to reveal that he slept with Lisa, but it doesn't happen. Problem is, Stan is a straight shooter and tells Reuben what he thinks the deserted groom wants to hear, that he always thought Lisa had a way about her that wasn't good, though he does not use those specific words. The next scene always strikes me as really weird, but perhaps that's because I'm a woman, I don't know. So, do men really talk business when standing at the urinal? I don't even like someone asking me to pass them toilet roll under the door when I'm in a cubicle in the public toilets. But Stan thinks that this is the perfect time to talk about a potential business deal with a wealthy Australian called Leyland Van Loo. And ew, seriously, this bit makes me cringe. Stan was just shaking his thang at the urinal and then rubbed his forefinger and thumb over Ruben's earlobe. It's so gross. In fact, he's generally just too touchy-feely all over. In my mind, he's a sexual harassment case just waiting to happen. But maybe he only just... Hang on, even if it were only to men he did that, it would still be a sexual harassment case, right? It's quite obvious that Reuben is lost. He has no idea what went wrong and how he can make it right. He is watching his wedding DVD pretty much on repeat when Sandy shows up with a camera crew. Apparently, he's being followed around by a film crew as part of an e-true Hollywood story showing what happened to him after his time as a briefly successful child star. Just what Ruben needs. But then everyone else knows his business anyway, so why should this be any different? I have to say here, one of the cameramen is a very young Kevin Hart. And I have to be honest... I would have missed it were it not for the fact that he has an incredibly distinctive voice and he only has one line. With the camera crew eating in the kitchen, Reuben carries on watching his wedding video while Sandy tries to convince him to go to a party that evening. Reuben is understandably proving resistant to the idea. Parties are not his thing in general and this is not the kind of distraction a destitute and abandoned groom needs. But Sandy will use 
any of the tools he has at his disposal. And one of them just happens to be really good observation skills. As they're watching the moment where Reuben is making his toast to Lisa at the wedding, Sandy points out the shocked, almost horror-filled expression that crossed Lisa's face when Reuben was gushing about how it felt so good to call her his wife. Sandy is actually quite good at reading people, even though he appears to be a shallow individual, absolutely and completely obsessed with being recognised for who he used to be. He can see what Reuben couldn't, or perhaps didn't want to, that Lisa wasn't ready to be married, no matter what she said to the contrary. This is the way to persuade Reuben into doing things he doesn't want to do, apparently. Make him wonder at his bride's feelings towards him at the ceremony. Yeah, that's a really good mindset to put someone in. The party is at some sort of weird modern art gallery where pretty much every single exhibit is a rabbit head on a plastic leg in some form or another, whether that be photo, painting or physical plastic rabbit head on a plastic leg with a single foot. Not bizarre at all. Definitely not the kind of exhibit I'd be interested in going to see. At the same party, Polly is working as a waitress, though she's not a very good one, to be fair. Sort of like Rachel in Central Perk at the very beginning. She offers someone wine and tops up a glass of white with the red that she has in her hand. And you slowly see it changing colour as it moves up the glass. It's quite odd and quite fascinating to watch at the same time, for some weird reason. Her friend Roxanne, who is played by the always subtle and always wonderful, at least in my eyes, Missy Pyle, tells her that the party is incredibly boring. But to be fair, why should she care as she's getting paid to work it as a waitress? And a guest is standing right beside her when she says, there aren't even any hot guys here. And again, why does that matter? You're getting paid. Reuben is studying an odd painting of a family next to a leg with a rabbit head on it. See, I said it was everywhere. When he steps back and catches everyone's attention as he knocks over a leg with a rabbit head on it. It's then that Polly recognises him. He's had enough though and is about to leave when she finally catches up with him. Turns out that they went to junior high together and she's recently back in town after having lived in Michigan for a while. Though that's only the start of her travels. Of course, this is the moment when a person is bound to put their foot in their mouth. And Polly is no different. She asks how Reuben's life has been. Pretty standard question, really, in the scheme of things. And then goes through all the things she's sure he must already be. Married, a dad, settled... All of those things, which we know he definitely is not right now, even if he wants to be. He denies that he's married at all, which is probably a wise move, telling a woman about the disaster that is his marriage when they've only just met or re-met in this particular situation, is about as likely to encourage further contact as telling someone that they have bad breath. Not something anyone wants to hear, even if it is the truth. Polly is having fun catching up with old school friends when her boss shows up. This boss is all business, smart hair, big fake smile and an expression on her face that is dead behind the eyes. 
Sandy, at that point, comes over to tell Reuben that they really need to leave because he's had a bit of an embarrassing accident and needs to not humiliate himself in a public space. Polly comes back after having been told off for not doing her job properly, continues to not do her job properly, and Sandy tells her that he's headlining a new Jesus Christ Superstar revival before they leave. Polly bends over and reveals a beautifully done tattoo at the base of her spine, and then the elevator arrives and Reuben and Sandy depart the party. Probably a wise move, to be fair. He's leaving on a cool note. And he isn't very cool. The next day, Reuben and Sandy are playing basketball and he tells Sandy that he's going to turn over a new leaf and actually ask Polly out. Before Sandy can do more than tell him that he shouldn't, another couple of men come over and challenge them to a game of two-on-two, which Sandy accepts without having even asked Reuben if he's interested. But that's par for the course when it comes to Sandy and his behaviour. Sometimes Sandy is extraordinarily aggressive and rude for no reason, and this is one of those occasions. Sandy believes that Polly is wrong for Reuben, but he's not having it, believing that they ran into each other for a reason. Despite what happened between him and Lisa, he still seems to have a strange but strong belief in fate and the possibility of love. At least that's how it comes across. I don't know, maybe other people will interpret it completely differently. This is my personal interpretation. There are a few times in this film that you can tell it's an odd mix of rom-com and straight-up comedy. And on the basketball court, when Ruben gets his face rubbed up against the hairy stomach of the player he's been guarding rather ineffectively, to be honest, and it goes all slow-mo, this is a Ben Stiller comedy moment. But it feels just a tiny bit out of place when pushed into the rest of the film at least from my perspective. That night, Reuben goes straight for it, calling information for Polly's phone number and details. He calls, but when she answers, he hangs up. Instinctively, self-preservation has taken control. Of course, he stupidly didn't block his number when he called, so she just star 69s it, and he doesn't answer, leaving his answer phone to pick it up which he then destroys because there's no way of stopping that entire tape thing from running. Yeah, great. So smooth. The next day, he's standing outside her building and watches her as she gets home. She drops her bags on the floor to desperately search for her keys. He then tries to make things casual as though he's near her home by accident, even though he lives nowhere nearby. To be honest, he is not the best at playing games, and for a moment it seems as though she's going to call him out on it. But possibly she just doesn't care enough, or she is used to these things happening to her. Chance encounters, you know. Oh, I just happen to be near your house, but don't you live 20 miles away? You know, that kind of thing. Sometimes I wish that would happen to me, but I don't know if I'd like it if it did. While they're talking about what she bought on her shopping trip, including an incredibly expensive $200 loofah, he asks her out to dinner. It initially appears that she may say no. Instead, she tells him that she's not sure. So Reuben gives her his card so she can call him if she changes her mind. 
This entire encounter, though, just stinks of awkward, but maybe it's meant to because Reuben is a very awkward character by nature. At work, though, Reuben is all business. He knows his stuff and he is confident in his job. He is already on task with their new client, Leyland Van Loo. Apparently, Leyland is taking his company public and still wants to be in charge. So this means he needs a risk assessor like Reuben to show that despite being a risk taker at heart, he's someone that the investors can depend on. Leyland's also proving incredibly difficult to pin down. And this time, it's not because he's on holiday or in a business meeting. It's because he's in the hospital, having been bitten while swimming with great white sharks. You can already see the cogs in Ruben's risk assessor brain calculating how much this is going to add to any insurance policy costs that they are currently trying to put together or if they're actually going to insure him at all. And then Polly calls, telling him that she's free the following night. She's weird though, because when he tells her that he'll pick a restaurant, she tells him that she'll check and call him back later when she's already established that she's free. I'm not the only one, right, that thinks that's a little bit weird. I know that some people think, oh, I'm going to play hard to get. But she was playing hard to get and she called him. You can see the size of Sandy's ego when he displays frustration at being told he's not the lead and should just play the role he's been given, which happens to be Judas Iscariot. There are a lot of strange personalities in this film and Polly is no different. It seems that she has some weird control thing going. She's available until she's asked definitely to make plans, and then it's maybe. She has to be the one who makes the ultimate decision, and she proves this by leaving a message on Ruben's answer machine with a time and a location. She's in charge of this date. Poor Ruben, however, has IBS, and anyone with that will be able to tell you that sometimes food is not your friend. And certain foods are never your friend, especially anything that's too spicy, too rich, too creamy. But let's save that conversation for after Sandy's tips on modern dating, which include how sex has changed, how spanking to get things going is a good thing, and you need to tell your consenting date that you're their daddy. Yeah, not so sure I would be a happy participant when it comes to Sandy's idea of the modern encounter. Reuben has a tendency to put a lot of pressure on things and this date with Polly is no different. While at lunch, he tells Sandy that he believes this date is going to be a defining moment in his life. Judging Polly on the person she was in high school because he doesn't know the person she is now. When he gets to the date, it's his stomach's worst nightmare, a Moroccan restaurant where they eat with their hands. Polly has travelled a lot and this is the sort of place that is perfect for her and her ideals. Reuben, however, is in food hell. He's trying not to show the fact that he's having issues. He's sweating as the spicy food is too much and his stomach is not reacting at all well. Throughout the date, Polly makes a point of mentioning that she has a history of making date mistakes as well as having an issue with commitment. Polly is the epitome of commitment phobic, but Reuben just doesn't seem to be listening, even though everything she is telling him makes her anything but perfect for the person he is. He walks her home, 
in pain, having been unable to use the bathroom at the restaurant. You just know, though, that things are not going to go well when Polly invites him into her apartment so they can continue the evening with a coffee. And as someone who drinks a lot of coffee, I can tell you when you've had spicy food, do not do this. I don't think that I need to go into any detail here. It's the epitome of toilet humour. Upset stomach, no toilet paper, and a partially blind ferret called Rodolfo, who is just so cute. In his little jumpers, he's so... Oh, he's just adorable. Someone really needs to tell Reuben, though, that towels do not flush. Because that's a lesson you learn very, very young, or you should anyway. I think I learned it very young when a friend of mine tried to flush the roll of towel that you had in those old bathroom dispensers at primary school down the toilet. But mostly because they intended to flood it anyway. What a way to end a date though, flooding someone's bathroom and then using a $200 loofah to clear the blocked toilet. It really couldn't have gone that much worse. The next week, Reuben goes to LA to finally meet with Leyland Van Loo to do his insurance assessment. But of course, things rarely go as planned, and somehow he finds himself on the roof of the building, answering the phone to Polly as Leyland does a base jump and breaks a few bones on the way down. Polly tells Reuben exactly what he needs to hear, that their previous date just didn't happen and she wants to start over with a clean slate. When he's back in New York, Reuben takes Polly to another ethnic restaurant. You'd have thought that he'd have learned by now that this is not the right move. Anyway, he presents her with a brand new loofah to replace the one he destroyed, and they have barely started to talk when his parents walk in. Both are incredibly keen to get to know who Polly is. Remember, his mum is the one who ensured that absolutely everyone he worked with was aware that Lisa had left him on their honeymoon. She's the classic cliché of an interfering mother figure. For some reason, his mum thinks that invading his date and joining them at their table is a great thing to do. She's totally cramping his style, and he has enough ways of doing that on his own. But she's not finished there. Having told Polly that he's not married and never has been, when his mum starts to talk about Lisa and how well she's doing in St Bart's, he tries to change the subject. But then Polly asks the million-dollar question, who's Lisa? After yet another disaster date, Reuben acknowledges that he should have told Polly that he was married from the start because it's really against his nature to be so dishonest. But being honest here, personally, I can't help thinking that he was protecting himself when he didn't tell her. He was saving himself from her pity. But now she knows the truth and there is every possibility it's going to change things between them. Because knowing that someone's lost someone in the way he did is going to inspire that thought of, oh no, I'm really sorry for you, that's awful. And that's not what everybody wants to hear. What surprises me at this point, though, is that all of these dates, the party, the trip to L.A. and everything else that's happened has taken place in just less than two weeks. The next evening, Polly calls and invites him to a salsa club. He is not the most coordinated of people on the dance floor, and he'd be the first to admit it. He would also admit that he is not keen on dancing. 
in any way or form. So far, every single thing that Polly has encouraged him to do has been totally out of his comfort zone. But really, this is what he needs. People are constantly underestimating him, including himself. Talk about weird stalkerific moves, though. On the dance floor, Reuben decides that he's going to leave and he walks up to Polly as she's dancing with someone else and just watches her. That would freak me out. But then, yeah, people staring freaks me out anyway. It's uncomfortable. He doesn't know who he is. He doesn't know the sort of guy he is, what he wants or anything else. When Polly asks him what kind of guy he actually is, he tells her he's risk averse, he has IBS and he can't dance. I think the IBS revelation is probably the most shocking thing because she's been taking him to these ethnic restaurants. He's been taking her to the same places because he knows that she likes the food and it's causing him an immense amount of pain every time he goes. He tells her that they won't work out. So, of course, it's like she takes this as a challenge. And before you know it, they're kissing and heading back to her apartment. In the background, we get some staple singers performing Let's Do It Again, rather sexy and smooth, a perfect seduction soundtrack. And Reuben takes Sandy's bad advice and spanks Polly as she joins him on the bed. Flash forward, and I'm assuming that it's a few nights later, but Reuben takes Polly home to his apartment where he shows her the routine for cleaning the bed of what seems like way too many unnecessary throw pillows. Sorry, if it were me, those throw pillows would have been thrown out the window the moment I bought them. Actually, what am I saying? I wouldn't have even bought them. There is no need for more than one throw pillow on a bed, if any at all, unless you're setting the stage for some kind of, I don't know, did Lisa always set things up to sell them? Because that's what it looks like. It's the sort of thing you see in a photo shoot. They're just a waste of material. Polly goes into the kitchen, takes a knife, and then takes that knife to a pillow and dares Reuben to do the same. Initially, he's a bit resistant, but then he does it and he feels relief, so much so that he ends up going straight through the mattress as well as the pillow. A bit too heavy-handed, perhaps. <laughs> okay, I have a question here about Polly and her character. Is losing keys meant to be a cute and quirky trait or something? What is it with Polly and her keys? Every single time you see her, it's as though this is the thing they decided to give her to make her the weird manic pixie girl. She's nice, but she keeps on losing her keys. Here we go. Here's her character trait. For some reason, Reuben agrees to go back to the dance club with Polly, even though he has already made it clear that he doesn't dance and doesn't feel comfortable in the environment. However, this time he takes the opportunity to show some attitude towards Javier, Polly's handsome Cuban dance partner, telling him to stay away from Polly altogether. Bad move, Reuben. Really bad move. No independent woman wants a man to be that territorial. It's actually very unattractive. It turns out, lucky for Reuben, because Javier is built and taller and bigger than him, Javier tells him he's no threat, as he's gay. So awkwardly, Reuben then asks if he can teach him to dance so that he can be Polly's partner on the dance floor. 
which is kind of sweet, but coming on the back of a threat, it's a little bit weird. Ruben is taking things just a little bit too fast with Polly, as though he feels that he wasted time in marrying Lisa first, though they are still married. No divorce, no communication, nothing as far as we're aware. Polly comes to visit Ruben's office and it's obvious that she really doesn't get Ruben's job at all. She's a risk taker, so when she sees his list of the pros and cons of insuring Leyland Van Loo, she almost takes it as a list of recommendations for things that she should do because things like base jumping are meant to be fun and that's the type of person she is. Meanwhile, Ruben is having so much fun. Every single meeting with Leyland is a test of his strength and sanity. Rather than just talking like a sensible person, they end up having a very violent and fast-moving game of racquetball. After Leyland pulls a broken tooth from his bleeding mouth, having <laughs> tried to hit a ball and smashed his face into the glass, Leyland invites Reuben to Nantucket to give him a chance to see the sort of man he is denying insurance to, showing him what a safe bet he really is. Is that what he's going to do? Hmm... Not too sure of that. That evening, while getting a lecture from Reuben on how germ-ridden bar snacks are, Polly invites herself to Nantucket because it sounds like fun. Reuben even points out that she has committed to something in advance without making excuses, which is a big thing for her, and he's surprised. Okay, this is a strange observation, but time really doesn't seem to have any meaning in a rom-com. It could be two weeks, could be two months. But on their next evening at the Salsa Club, Ruben surprises Polly, as he can definitely do way more than a box step on the dance floor, thanks to lessons from Javier. But of course, he takes it way too far and, in my view, looks like a total tit. But Polly actually seems to like it. He's made an effort. And that's something that people don't tend to do very often. Their fun has to end sometime though. And when they get back to Reuben's apartment, there is luggage in the hall and a wife lying on the sofa. She's acting as though she's done nothing wrong and has every right to be there. To be fair, it is their apartment, but she left him. So surely she's given up any rights? Or am I being daft? Lisa promises that she's never going to hurt him again, but is he actually going to take her back? He'd be a fool to believe her when she tells him that she wants to start again, to go back to how things were. She's not daft, though, and she is trying to tug on his memory heartstrings and get forgiveness when he actually owes her nothing. Polly, ever understanding and not exactly invested in the relationship, calls Reuben and tells him that she would understand if he was going to take Lisa back, as she's his wife. Everyone seems to ignore the fact that she left him, humiliated him, cheated on him, and they just expect him to forgive her all of those things, as though they never happened. Unsure what to do, he goes to see Sandy, trusting that his best friend will tell him the truth. Sandy's apartment is a shrine to the one movie he starred in when he was a teenager, and he can't seem to face the fact that his fame was short-lived, continuing to play on his 15 minutes in the limelight as though it has to last longer. Also, that film poster, at least, seems to have been seriously inspired by The Breakfast Club. 
Ruben just can't be casual. While he's considering his options, he's actually using the risk assessment software he uses to decide whether to insure big risk individuals to weigh up whether Polly is the right person to bet on when it comes to a relationship. He's talking about her prospects and plans as they plug into his life without ever considering whether he actually slots into hers. At the last minute, Polly decides to cancel their Nantucket trip. But she is eventually persuaded to go and it's a beautiful boat if you aren't beset with seasickness like I am. Reuben is in their cabin bathroom when Polly finds his risk calculations on his computer. Has he not heard of screen lock? Anyway, while he's rehearsing asking her to make things more official, she's reading through his risk assessment. It's hardly flattering seeing that he's using a computer program to decide whether she's worth taking a risk on. None of the things he's used to calculate their future are in any way complimentary. He's really lucky, to be fair, that they're in the middle of a pretty bad squall, because if they weren't, Polly would be within her rights to deck him or throw him overboard. I wonder if he can swim. The argument in the cabin is punctuated with clips of Leyland battling nature on the deck alone, though Leyland is enjoying his moments in the storm, while neither Polly nor Reuben are having any fun arguing about the state of their relationship. Well, what Reuben assumes is their relationship. Polly is going to take herself out of the running. She has no interest in getting married and moving to the suburbs, but it's clear there's a reason for that, and this is the moment the only moment where she shows anything other than random moments of absent-mindedness and flighty behaviour. It turns out that her father had a whole second family that they found out about, and it did a number on her, making her more than a little bit wary of letting anyone get too close. She's getting very close to making her point about relationships not being a part of who she is when the boat crashes into some rocks and sinks, Luckily, everyone, including cute little Rodolfo, who somehow managed to smuggle his way inside Polly's bag, survives. After the trip, Reuben goes back to the house he bought to start his life with Lisa in, but he doesn't make a move to get back with her. Instead, he tries to reach out to Polly, leaving messages on her answer machine that go unanswered. As far as she's concerned, it seems that this chapter of her life is over and she needs to move on to the next. Reuben is at the community theatre to see Sandy performing in Jesus Christ Superstar when he bumps into Javier, who tells him that Polly is leaving town, though he has no idea where she's planning on going. He starts to ask for information, but is cut off when Lisa arrives. Reuben is doing what everyone expects, even if it's not the right thing for him. Things between the two are still incredibly awkward, but she's trying, though it feels that her attempts are both insincere and incredibly empty. If she could abandon him on their honeymoon, what's to stop her from walking away again? The community theatre is full and they're waiting for the show to start. The music begins and the curtain is raised when Reuben gets a call from Stan telling him that the meeting with Leyland's investors is about to take place and he has to get there as quickly as possible. This is the moment when it would be really handy if he could just produce Insta-clones and the film suddenly became a sci-fi fantasy rom-com thing. One to go to the meeting, 
one to show support for his friend who has just had a mini diva breakdown and announced he is going to be playing the lead despite that not being his role and of course the third to run after Polly and make one last attempt to salvage their relationship. Reuben is between a rock and a hard place. It's clear that his friend needs his help. He's trapped in the past and doesn't want to escape. It's at this point that Reuben's dad starts talking, a man who has said less than five words up to this point in the film. It's as though his message is for Reuben, but he's telling Sandy that he needs to live life because it's short and you only get one shot. What he says makes Reuben realise that he has made a mistake in trying to make things work with Lisa. He finally tells her what he should have done right at the very beginning, that he's not going to get back together with her. It turns out that Sandy has been lying to everybody. The E! True Hollywood story crew that were following him around were actually hired by him because he hoped that he could sell it to the network when it was finished. This is clearly news to the camera crew who start to look at questioningly at their existence at this moment. Reuben actually puts his career at risk to reach Polly in time. His mind having been opened by the things his dad said about taking risks, he sends Sandy as his proxy to the office for the big client meeting, which could make or break his career. And this is the point where Sandy really has to test his acting chops. In a twist on the rom-com cliché that is running desperately through an airport to reach the man or woman of their dreams, we get snippets of Reuben running across the streets of New York, dodging other pedestrians as they're headed on their merry way. While Reuben is trying to fix his love life, Sandy is at the meeting, having been charged with delivering Reuben's findings on Leyland Van Loo and whether he is someone they should insure or not, and he is milking the role for all that it's worth. Was the chase worth it? It appears not, at least initially, when Reuben arrives at Polly's apartment in time to see a taxi pull away. But then he hears Rodolfo, and it turns out that in her absent-minded charming, quirky way, she forgot her beloved ferret and there is no way that she will leave him behind. And she doesn't. She pulls up moments later, though she is not overly happy that Reuben is there. It's never made clear exactly where Polly was going, well, apart from JFK, but when Reuben finally proves that he can let himself go, Polly is both grossed out at his eating nuts from the NYC sidewalk, yep, same here, and flattered that he cares enough about her that he would do something he is so averse to. But Reuben just wants to convince her that he is in love with her and she is a risk he's willing to take. He doesn't want her to leave. Fast forward a little while and Reuben and Polly are in St Bart's. They're just lying on the sandy beach when Claude spots them. He offers them scuba lessons and tells Reuben that Lisa broke his heart that he is still in pain over it while Reuben is recovered, shows that he made the right move in declining her overtures when she returned to the US. They both thank Claude for the lesson offer, but they're on the island with Leyland, and they plan on going diving with him. Good luck on that one. It's as Claude walks away that Reuben realises he actually owes Claude his thanks. Without him, he'd never have found Polly. Just in case you haven't checked any podcatchers in the last week, 
I visited a dystopian future for the most recent episode of The Bookshop as I talked about the first book in the new adult Four Horsemen series by Laura Thalassa, Pestilence. It's available for download now. Unlike rumour has it, Along Came Polly was actually a box office success. It had a relatively decent budget of $42 million and at the global box office, it made $178 million, almost $100 million more than rumour has it made the following year. 2004 marked a seriously busy time in Jennifer Aniston's life. Not only was she filming the final season of Friends, but at one point during production, she was also filming both Bruce Almighty and Along Came Polly. This coincided with Aniston also breaking her toe, so things weren't completely smooth and she had to film multiple scenes while injured. Luckily, it was an injury easily hidden from view. That said, though, breaking a toe hurts like the devil. I've broken the same toe three times, and every single time I did it the same way. Seriously, I am very, very clumsy, and I really should watch where I'm walking, because I banged it on a chair. That really hurt. Despite being a box office success, it wasn't loved by the critics. And though it's a film that is fondly remembered by many, I've spoken to a fair few of them. The reviews on Rotten Tomatoes only give the film an approval rating of just 27%, with an audience approval of 47 So even though loads of people went to see it, the people who write the reviews aren't too complimentary. Will Self is ever blunt and honest, and in this review in The Evening Standard... He is no different. It may seem strange to say this, but despite the roll call of vulgarities at the beginning of this piece, along came Polly could have done with a great deal more farting and sharting. The stiller persona depends for its humour on a high level of continuous exposure to farce, not just the occasional flash. Without having to resurrect dead pets or face arrest for cruising, stiller becomes just another mildly baffled dweeb. And Jennifer Aniston is no great physical comedienne, so without the vast team of writers required to feed her the gags that have made Friends consistently watchable for a decade, if also frankly loathsome, she becomes just another pretty competent face. As for poor Philip Seymour Hoffman, to waste a talent of his scale on this piffling thing was felonious. And over on IMDb, people seem to feel about the same, with one saying... Complete garbage. What's worse than a romantic comedy? A one-joke romantic comedy, particularly with a half-decent cast that should have known better. With the exception of a blind ferret, a tool that shows the movie is already hurting if it needs to pull a few laughs, the movie sucks on every level. Stiller has pulled everything in this one movie that we've seen in all his others, and Aniston is not funny. What is going on? After Stiller is cheated on the first day of his honeymoon, he attempts to rebound by hooking up with an old friend. It's a nice moment when the actors try so well that the script has no choice but to own up that it just plain sucks. Seriously, it's a waste of life to watch this. There are far more romantic comedies out there. Funnier, more romantic, more chemistry. This movie doesn't have it and deserves a place in your trash bin. This film definitely has its moments, but as with any film starring Ben Stiller, there are still times when you just have to throw your hands up in the air and admit that you're going to have to cringe a little bit. There are more scenes that are totally unnecessary, 
And here I am specifically thinking of the bathroom scene with Alec Baldwin and the entire basketball court moment. Polly is charming, but she has to be in order to tamp down some of Ruben's more irritating and frustrating traits. If she weren't so quirky and so light-hearted, then his rigidity and multitude of problems would have the majority of audiences switching off in droves. I have to be honest, my favourite character in the entire thing has no lines, has minimal screen time and isn't even human. Yes, my favourite character is Rodolfo. He's cute, he's funny and you just can't help but feel sorry for him when he almost becomes the victim of Ruben's irritable bowel incident at Polly's and then gets left behind when she has to escape the city. Polly was the cliché that I have come to expect from films where the male protagonist is a stickler for the rules. She's the girl without boundaries, the girl who doesn't want to be tied down, who loves adventure and no commitment. But of course she has a backstory to explain it, though in this particular instance we don't find it out until the film is almost over. If we'd found out about Polly's backstory at the start, it would probably have been easier to care about her. But then I get the feeling that we were meant to purely be observers as this story was acted out and not care about anything that was played out on screen, which is a shame because there was the potential to give more than a single damn about everyone. Of course, when compared with last week's film, this one has a lot more to recommend it. <laughs> there are no hints at possible incestuous relationships or characters so shallow and self-centred that they hurt everyone around them. Okay, to be fair, we have Lisa, but while she's mentioned in the film and she does hurt Reuben, that's undeniable, in the end she's unimportant. All of that being said, we've come to the question and answer part of the episode – let me know if there are any questions you would like to hear me answer about the films I watch or if there's something you'd really love to hear me cover. So here goes. Did I enjoy it? I did. I know that it was cliché piled upon cliché, especially where the characters were concerned, but this is the charm of films like Along Came Polly. One of the characters is quirky and different, the other is uptight and constantly distressed. There is also always an unusual best friend of one of the characters who has a few issues of their own to work through. Add a cute animal into the mix and you've got the perfect combination of characters and potential situations to make a film that tugs on a few heartstrings and encourages a few giggles. So yes, I did enjoy it. In the UK, it's currently available to watch over on Netflix. Would I watch it again? I can honestly say that until I decided to do this season, I hadn't seen Along Came Polly for probably 10 years. Not because I don't like it, but because, as I said in my last episode, there are a lot of films that come above this on my rewatch list. That's not to say it wasn't fun, because it was, but it's not a film I need to rewatch to remember elements of it that are incredibly memorable. Okay, so many are easy to recall because they were in the preview, such as the basketball scene and Ruben's bathroom troubles. But a film is about little surprises so that with every rewatch, noticing bits I had forgotten is the fun I need when I'm flicking through the streaming services every evening. And yes, I do. So how are things in the coffee household this week? I have been feeling a little bit anxious of late. The most frustrating thing is that I have no idea why. Life is, in general, going really well. I am learning the skills I need to do my job. 
I am figuring out what I'm meant to do and what the company wants. And they have been nothing but supportive. However, for some reason, I just can't help sitting down of an evening and waiting for the other shoe to drop. And it's driving me just a little bit batty. The worst thing about this particular anxiety is the fact that I can't quite put my finger on the cause at all. It's led to unusual dreams, restless nights, and mornings where I have felt as though my head weighs about 10 stone. After last week's never-ending and overbearing memories of my school and work bullies, the last thing I needed this week was odd dreams that just won't let up, and a constant feeling that something is really wrong. Does anyone else ever get that feeling that something is going to happen that sets them on edge? Over the last week, I have been battling constant awareness that something is going to happen and that whatever it is, isn't going to be good for me and my sanity. Oh, well, if I have learned anything in my life, it's that if it's going to happen, there is absolutely nothing I can do but take a deep breath and face it head on, no matter what it ends up being. On another random note, I decided that I was going to take the plunge this week and finally get something done with the rat's nest that is my hair. Unfortunately, as with most things like this, I was in a hurry and ended up accepting the first appointment slot I was given and then spent the entirety of the evening afterwards regretting it. I am now possibly going to cancel, if only because that dread is back and I can't help feeling that I am being rushed by the hairdresser. And despite knowing what I want, it's not what I would end up with if I go now. I guess sometimes the lesson is that impulses should be ignored and if in doubt, don't do it. So that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoy the listen and I will be back again next week with more. Don't forget, the bookshop will be open again on Monday with a brand new review and I hope you'll like what I have to say about my next book. If you like what you hear, why not share it with your friends and family and please post a review or give me a star rating over on Podchaser. I love reading what you have to say. You can follow me on Twitter at need underscore three underscore mugs on Instagram at Not Before Coffee Podcast, or over on Good Pods, where I've set up an account at Not Before Coffee. Well, I need another cup of coffee, have I said that enough? As I definitely need more, so I'm going to go and put the kettle on. Until next time, this is me saying farewell. <laughs>